when a fashion designer decides to sue someone, they have to take that into consideration. What is the strength of their intellectual property rights? Mm -hmm. Because you don't want to sue someone and then lose all your rights and now have your design or your fashion um, open and free for anyone to use. Welcome to Fashion Cast, the fashion industry's premier podcast where we explore all things fashion, from designers and the latest styles to sustainability and breaking fashion news, we keep you informed. Now, enjoy the show with your hosts, Michael Gloucester and me, Christine Tuck-Tuck. On today's episode, we have Andrea Arndt. Andrea is an attorney specializing in intellectual property law, including patents, trademarks, trade secrets, and copyrights. She also specializes in foreign patent prosecution, and intellectual property law in the fashion industry. Welcome to Fashion Cast, Andrea. Hi, it's such a pleasure to be here. So tell us why you chose to specialize in patent law and specifically what attracted you to the fashion industry. So my undergrad degree is in biomedical engineering. And during one of my designs with with a team that I worked with, I developed an invention that went through the patent process. Wow. So it was pretty cool. It exposed me to the legal side of inventions and this whole new space that I didn't know as a student. So I decided to work at a law firm in intellectual property and expose myself to U.S. and foreign patent and trademark law. And from there, decided to go to law school. Wow, that's impressive. Mm -hmm. Now, wait a minute. What did you invent? That's what I was going to ask her. That was my next question. Are we going to understand <laughs> yeah. what you invented yeah. in biomedical Can you engineering? Oh, sure. So I was working with doctors in a hospital to help elderly patients who were getting procedures done in MRI machines and their arms would fall asleep or they had mm. arthritis and they couldn't put their arms above their head. And some of these processes were 45 minutes to an hour. So it was very hard for such patients. Mm -hmm. So we developed kind of like a shelf for their arms that didn't interfere with the MRI machine. Interesting. And we went to different uh, nursing homes and mm. measured people's arms and wow. were pretty technical about it so that mm. we could make sure that we served the majority of patients coming in for these procedures. Are they still using it? I think so. I wow. didn't ask. Yeah, That's I think great. had an MRR later. MRI <laughs> lately. Come on. That's great. Amazing. So why should designers in general be concerned about patents, trademarks, and copyright? You know, what are the risks of not protecting your intellectual property or IP, as we like to say? It is very important for all people, especially designers, to protect their brands. Why it's so important for designers is that it is very inexpensive for third parties or uh, manufacturers in other countries to basically rip off your brand, make knockoff mm -hmm. products and sell it. So if you do not protect yourself in the IP world with patents or trademarks, copyrights, or even trade dress, you're not going to have the proper legal authority to stop them from ripping off your brand. Is there a range a designer should expect to spend? Well, it kind of depends on what you're designing. 
So the, the different types of IP cost different amounts of money to get a granted patent or a registered copyright or a registered trademark. If you have an invention that has a utility function versus just an ornamental look, you might want to get design or utility patent protection versus trademarks or copyright. Mm -hmm. So for example, to get a copyright application, that's probably the least expensive way to protect your brand. And that would run maybe in the range of 500 to 1,000 mm -hmm. for start to finish. So that's the entirety of it. And it's a fairly quick process, as quick as three months, but it could be six months to a year to get that registration. It just depends on the backlog of the U.S. Copyright Office. So because that's through the USPTO... Does that mean my design would be protected nationally? So for copyrights, it's through the Copyright Office. It's a federal registration, so it is protected throughout the United States. As for design and trade or design patents, utility patents, and trademarks, those are federal registrations as well. And those are through the US Patent and Trademark Office. There's also procedures you can do to file applications and get registrations in foreign countries. Right. And you're at Dickinson Wright, and Dickinson Wright is a national law firm. Is that true? Yes, we are all throughout the United States. We have 11 offices, and then we're also in Canada, in Toronto. Ooh, so we have oh, a little bit of a international Ooh. flavor there, Ooh. and it's really great to be able to contact our associates in, in Toronto to get registrations in Canada. But we also have relationships with foreign associates all around the world. So for us, it's not very difficult to obtain protection any in any country you want. So Andrea, can you describe what is the most common IP infringement, copyright, trademark, patent, etc.? You know, I don't think that there's necessarily a most common, but perhaps in the fashion world, probably trademark and trade dress are the most common asserted rights. And I think that's partly because trademarks are fairly easy to get registrations mm -hmm. of. And often designers have trade dress rights because their brands become very popular, very famous, well-known. Mm -hmm. And so they can assert those rights as well. Um, it's a little more difficult to obtain copyright registration for designs. It's not, yeah. it's not unheard of, but it's just more difficult. Yeah. And then as for patents... There's usually not too much utility, meaning functional aspects of clothing, shoes, et cetera, mm. to obtain utility protection. But design patents are fairly common in the fashion world. Which reminds me of, I don't know if you've heard about the Versace and Fashionova case. Yes. You've heard about that, mm -hmm. where Fashionova designed a very similar dress that Versace had designed, which is the jungle dress that Jennifer Lopez wears, wore. So it, it, I did look it up, and they do have a very – it's very similar. The dress is very similar. But I was curious to know, how could Versace patent their design where something like this won't happen? I think what it really was is that Jennifer Lopez made this dress so famous that it obtained kind of like a trade dress rights to it. It's my understanding that they copyrighted the design. They didn't get a design patent on it. And the reason how they copyrighted it was that they said it was creative and distinctive mm -hmm. and it wasn't just basic geometric shapes. 
So Mm -hmm. because there was some sort of creativity to it, the Copyright Office decided that it was um, able to get a copyright registration. Yeah. Fashion Nova claimed that uh, Versace, that the design wasn't even that, it wasn't even an original design. So that's why they had done that. Yeah. So a lot of times when one designer or fashion company sues another one for, you know, allegedly knocking off their brand, Mm -hmm. the party getting sued will try to invalidate their IP. So they'll try to get a decision that the rights owner shouldn't have had a copyright or shouldn't have had the trademark or shouldn't have had a design. And that for some reason that their IP is invalid. And so if the IP is deemed invalid, then the lawsuit essentially goes away because there's nothing to enforce anymore. Mm. So it's a defense. Mm. So when when a fashion designer decides to sue someone, they have to take that into consideration. What is the strength of their intellectual property rights? Mm-hmm. Because you don't want to sue someone and then lose all your rights and now have your design or your fashion um, open and free for anyone to use. I understand that. There seems to be this never-ending submission of these high-profile fashion cases. This case, you know, people seem to forget that the Versace dress that Jennifer Lopez wore was in 2000, and now Mm -hmm. here we are in 2020. It's 20 years later, and we're still talking about this. And I mean, this is very, very recent. I mean, this is like last year that some of this stuff was, and, and it's still in court in California. So at some point, it, apparently, there's, there's no time requirement for someone to make a case against someone else. They can just pop up and say, wait a minute, my patent didn't run out. It's still running. Isn't there like some restricted t- 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? Or it's just once you have the patent or the copyright or the trademark, you have it. To put it generally, it depends what type of intellectual property you have. So for example... For a utility patent, it's 20 years from the filing date. A design patent runs 15 years from the date of grant. A trademark essentially is good as long as you continue using it in commerce in connection with your brand and you file the necessary paperwork and fees periodically. And then for copyrights, it depends if you are a solo person or a company, it you know, also has a range, but let's just say 70 years. So depending on what type of IP, you have a range of different lifespan for your rights. So Versace thinks that they're still within their range, obviously. They would be because it's a copyright. And we will be linking to the cases that we talk about today in the show notes. So if anyone wants to look at me, it's very obvious. If you look at some of these other, and it wasn't just the Jennifer Lopez dress, quote unquote, um, there's multiple examples where they, um, where the design is so obvious. I mean, mm-hmm. the second one in particular. This is, like you mentioned, it's happening all the time. Is it worth fighting these things all the time? I mean, it may be for Versace because they're loaded with money, but <laughs> I don't know for a small designer if it's just kind of like, you know, I just got to keep going. I don't know, you put your head down and keep going, or do you say, no, I'm, I'm going to do it the right way? Well, there's pros and cons to both. But if you don't police your rights, you essentially lose them and they become generic. So often cases won't go to trial. They will settle. They will settle before anything's even filed with a court. 
And what happens often is that if a designer thinks that somebody is infringing their brand, they'll talk to their attorneys and their attorneys will send the alleged infringer a cease and desist letter. Mm. And in that letter, the attorney is saying, hey, we think we have this protectable IP and based on what you're manufacturing and or selling, we think that you're infringing our client's IP. So we're going to ask you to stop selling it and to destroy your product or, you know, whatever the client wants. And, you know, after discussion, we think is appropriate depending on the situation. And in most cases, that's enough because really it's if you don't stop, then we're going to have to take legal action. And that gets very expensive. So depending who it is, uh, if it's, you know, huge companies with big pockets or if it's small designers, they may not want to proceed, so they're going to stop. And if nothing else, it gets a conversation going that they can work out terms to make it acceptable for both parties. And sometimes it turns into a licensing opportunity. Yeah, that reminds me of also uh, with um, Gucci and Dapper Dan. Dapper Dan was, you know, Dapper Dan. Well, he was um, designing clothing in general that was very similar to Gucci's style. So now Gucci and Dapper Dan are collaborating and now they're working together, even though he was, you know, designing the same exact look that Gucci had. Yeah, well, he, I think he was a celebrity and still is. And so it made sense for them probably to collaborate rather than fight with the guy, <laughs> yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. So if you can't beat them, you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> well, and it's, it's kind of funny that lately uh, cease and desist letters have actually become kind of amusing. And a lot of companies are kind of making parodies out of it mm. or really comedic ways to deliver the cease and desist, including like what's in the letter and the presentation to the company. On YouTube, <laughs> I believe there was a cease and desist letter from Budweiser to a local brewery outside of the Twin Cities right before the Super Bowl game to present the cease and desist letter to the company. There was a actor, I'm guessing, who dressed up in full Viking attire oh. and went heary, heary and <laughs> read the letter and, That's so you know, funny. and yeah. gave the company some tickets to the Super Bowl game, if they stopped, you know, selling uh, a beer that infringed their oh. mark. And oh, it was fantastic. Oh, it was so much funny. So, so we'll it seems to be very common. Then. It, it is. It is. And yeah. a lot of times people think that they either don't know that someone has IP. They don't know they're infringing. Mm. They're not trying to harm. Mm -hmm. But what's happening is that they're getting benefit and the goodwill of some other brand. And so... The company investing all the money and resources in developing their brand doesn't want someone else to benefit from it. So it's usually just an easy conversation and it it goes away or licensing or some other mm -hmm. thing. So sometimes mm -hmm. it's it's beneficial, but you have to be you have to be smart about how you mm -hmm. handle it in the first place. Mm -hmm. So why do I think that copyright infringement, like in the music industry, is much, much more difficult? to pull off than it is in the fashion industry. It seems like, you know, if there's anyone that stepped on my ground in the music industry, they're sued immediately, and your three chords mm -hmm. were the same as my three chords 50 <laughs> yeah. years ago, and, you know, it's just That's constantly true. happening. Where um, in the fashion industry, you know, everybody They can knows, get away with a lot more. Yeah, you can go to Times Square and buy any kind of, you know, fake Rolex you want, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So is this more prominent in the fashion industry? Yeah, I would agree with that. And, and partly what I had said earlier is that it's so easy 
to create counterfeit products that it's it's really hard to police it. It's hard to um, actually get third-party vendors to remove infringing uh, parties from selling their product, uh, lots of takedown notices. I mean, there's just lots going on, and it's just hard to police everything. Mm, it's hard to protect yourself in the industry as mm-hmm. a designer. Well, yeah, general. and I think this goes back, and Christine and I have been talking about this for six months. There just doesn't seem to be the leadership in the fashion industry where you would just have someone, you know, this would be through arbitration or something, and you just... Here, it just seems like uh, the Wild West. You know, we're, we don't care that you're a competitor in the fashion industry. We're just going to run you over and steal whatever you have. And, and, and it doesn't matter what country it's in, too. You know, in, in Christine's intro, we talked a little bit about your experience in the international prosecution of fashion law. Are there any specific cases or that you can talk about or instances that you know about I guess, I don't know that the Versace in Fashion Nova is an international case. I mean, it may be. I don't know. Well, there are a lot of European designers who do sue in the U.S. as well Mm -hmm. as in Europe. And uh, there was a case where I believe it was New Balance sued three different Chinese manufacturers for stealing or basically creating shoes that had a slanted N on the shoe. Oh, really? And they won. And oh. this is a huge case because this is an inter- like international, they sued counterfeiters, won 1.5 million US dollars. That's great. Yeah. And I'm hoping that it, it continues to trend that way. Yeah. Because it's just, it's hard to find people and it's hard to sue and it's hard to collect. Mm-hmm. And you're in a foreign country. So, laws are always different and it's just it's more difficult so to have a case like that where new balance was successful shocking it was it was fantastic because they're out of the country exactly and i I think maybe part of the reason why it's hard to police is because it's different countries often Mm -hmm. involved in it yeah and also that not everyone makes it all the way through court for a decision to be made they settle they settle yeah and when you settle there's no precedence So it mm-hmm. makes it a lot more difficult. And perhaps in the music industry, uh, they're going all the way through trial. And then there's a decision before they settle. In the case of the New Balance no. versus the Chinese firms, where would they sue? Would they sue in the U.S. or would they sue in China or would they sue at the World Trade Organization? Where would you go if you wanted to prosecute? Well, in this case, they actually filed a lawsuit in China and the Chinese courts decided that the three Chinese manufacturers were, in fact, infringing their mark. Mm -hmm. So this is why it's so important is because they're going directly into that foreign country. Um, In other situations, it really just depends. They could file suit in the U.S., in foreign jurisdictions as well. So you said the N was uh, very similar to the New Balance, but what was the name? Was there a name or it was just the N? I don't know if they and actually... the logo looked too similar. Yeah, so they just slanted it. Uh-huh. So it was the same N, but just in a slanted position, and mm-hmm. that was enough for infringement. Mm. I mean, really, I don't know how they thought they can get away with that. I mean, what the courts are looking <laughs> to is mm-hmm. whether there's a likelihood of confusion. Mm-hmm. So if, there, it was confusing. It is it, confusing. Exactly. Then, for sure. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. So stay with China for a second. So does the Trump trade doctrine, quote-unquote, is that helping U.S. companies or even 
I, I suppose it may spill over into Europe too with regard to Chinese IP infringement. Or is it, you know, it's, it doesn't matter. They don't, they don't care about the Trump doctrine and things that are signed in terms of trade agreements. You know, it, it's hard to tell because it is still somewhat new. I mean, the, this agreement is really to increase tariffs on aluminum and steel. But I think that it's going to have a residual impact on the fashion industry and cause prices to increase. And that's going to take a toll on, you know, everyone. So we're not sure exactly how it's going to pan out or what the consequences will be. And we're just going to have to wait and see. But I know that there's a lot of concern in the industry that it may have some residual effect. Yeah, so I guess my concern is that the intellectual property rights through these trade agreements, whether it's round one, round two, round three, are just going to go to the tech companies and not to the fashion companies. It's not going to be widespread or included in, in other particular industries other than just the tech industry. But you're saying eh, it may be included in the fashion industry or they may, they may be a benefactor. Well, the fashion industry is huge. And if you just think about counterfeit products, that's almost $12 billion a year in counterfeit products. I mean, that's a lot of money. So it would be kind of foolish to think that the fashion industry would not be included at all in this. So if a designer does everything right in terms of protecting their IP here in the U.S. and proceeds to sell on international platforms, purchase platforms such as Shopify, will they be protected overseas? They'll be protected in the U.S. so that no one can sell their brand within the U.S., but they won't be protected from other people infringing their brand overseas. So in order to protect themselves, they should file some sort of IP internationally. For example, someone could file a patent or a trademark or a copyright in Europe, and that would cover all of Europe, like most of the European countries, mm. in, in one application, one registration. So it would be a difficult process. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's also, you can file in China or in any country where you manufacture your product so that you can protect from other manufacturers exporting a knockoff product. And you also want to protect in those countries where your manufacturers are located because you want to make sure that you can export your brand from that, that country. For example, if a competitor decides to knock off your brand, they might try to get a trademark with a name that is your name or very similar to your name and then try to prevent you from exporting from those countries. So that mm. is a really tricky thing that mm -hmm. some manufacturers have started doing and we don't ever want to be in that situation. So it's important, especially if you're a smaller brand, to be very strategic in where you file protection so that you can minimize the costs that you're spending but still get the value of the IP. Yeah, well, remember, you're talking to designers and fashion folks around the world right now. There's, you know, FashionCast has downloaded in 23 countries. So if you've got someone in Milan or Hanoi or Rija de, de Janeiro, you know, or New York, I, it seems to me that these designers and emerging designers ought to be budgeting something for trademark and copyright right in their startup cost. No, that's a very good point. 
it's important to protect your brand before you get too big for a couple of reasons. One, you don't want other people to knock off your your brand Mm -hmm. or have a similar product. And you also don't want to be infringing on someone else's. So what I usually advise my clients is if you're just starting your brand and you think you have a name or you have some ideas for brand names, that we do a quick search and we see if there's any other trademarks or products out there with a similar name that might be confusing or have a likelihood of confusion. And that might prevent you from getting a trademark on your brand or whatever you're trying to seek protection on. So it's good to do that and also to give you um, likelihood of getting a registration. So if there's something too similar, you might want to change your name before you put a lot of resources into your brand where you might have problems in the future. There's been situations where a company has been selling their product under a brand name for years and years and years. And another company comes in and gets a registration on a very similar or even the same brand name. And the first company then wants to get a registration, a trademark registration, and is precluded from doing so because it's the same as this competitor. So if you wait too long to get your your trademark registered, you might not be able to. Yeah, exactly. Can we pivot to one of these other high-profile cases? Because I think this is interesting. There's a lot of folks that don't believe that fashion is something that can have copyright protection. And apparently in Star Athletica versus Varsity Brands, the U.S. Supreme Court decided to copyright protect related cheerleading apparel This is interesting because the cheerleading apparel is really a utilization kind of thing. You know, cheerleading uniform is a cheerleading uniform is a cheerleading uniform, except Varsity Brand said, not our cheerleading uniform because we have special designs on those uniforms and we believe that those can be copyrighted. And the Supreme Court actually came up with a new rule and it's a two-test rule with regard to that, but they sided with Varsity Brands, which was was kind of shocking. Again, you know, this thing went all the way to the Supreme Court, and apparently these two companies can fight each other all the way there, and they probably have in-house attorneys like Andrea Arndt, but, you know, for the smaller company, you know, I, I think this is good because it helps smaller companies. Now there is what you mentioned earlier, some precedent. That's true. So in this case, what they found was protectable under the copyright law was this the stripes of a chevron. So it was a design feature and it didn't have any functional aspects to it. So it wasn't required on the cheerleader uniform to be a functional uniform. Instead, it was like a fashion design. It was a uh, something that could actually was creative and could be protected. So that's kind of what the argument was. And it's great because now the little guys don't have to fight as hard to get that protection. The little guys will be able to start getting protection, copyright protection, which is a lot less expensive than some of the other forms of intellectual property protection. And the the copyright office is going to look at this and go ahead and start registering aspects of Mm -hmm. designs. There's an, another high-profile case, uh, Target, which they were hit with an $8 million, I believe it was $8 million lawsuit by the British brand Burberry because they have also a knockoff 
scarf that Burberry has uh, designed. Do you know anything about that case? I do. Oh, okay. I Tell do. <laughs> what you, what <laughs> happened? <laughs> so what happened was Target started selling designs that were very similar to the famous Czech design of uh-huh. Burberry. Mm-hmm. It was a little bit different, but pretty similar. Mm-hmm. And there was a likelihood of confusion. And Burberry was asserting that basically Target was tarnishing their brand. Because was it the plaid scarf? Yep, that was one of the products. So, but, they, the, but if you think about it, there's plaid. There's always plaid scarves, you know. I mean, like, how was it that similar? Well, this is their famous. This is their famous design. So once once something reaches a level of being classified as famous, then you know you have a lot more rights. Wait, what does it take to get to famous? <laughs> is it is a time, time a certain number time, of sales? Maybe recognizable mm-hmm. around the world. I mean, I don't know what famous is. Well, it has well, a big company, Kanye West Burberry. is famous. <laughs> yeah. It has to have a lot of secondary meaning, which basically means that your average person is going to know what that it's is. It's a household name, Burberry. Exactly. Like everybody knows na- about Burberry. Right. And okay, so it's so recognizable. It's recognizable, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so when you look at it, you know that's a Burberry scarf because mm-hmm. you recognize their checker. So what happened in this case is that Target started selling products such as eyewear and water bottles and luggage um, bearing the trademark pattern of Burberry. And Burberry started sending them cease and desist letters. So there's a lot of accessories. Yeah, It wasn't just the scarf. No. So they had to do something about it. Well, and they were sending cease and desist letters. It wasn't going anywhere. Oh, really? And after... They Target knew that they shouldn't be selling this or that there's a potential of infringement. Mm -hmm. They started selling scarves, which is probably one of Burberry's most iconic um, articles that they sell. So So did they win this case? (laughs) Did they win? Did Burberry win? Did they stop? So creating these designs? I don't know because they settled. So technically nobody won. They settled. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) But do you think they stopped creating these designs now? Well, it depends how they settled. Maybe there was a license. Maybe there was something else. I doubt it. Because this is still this is recent. It's just 2018. Mm -hmm. And and I believe they settled in 2019. Mm. You know, Litigation is very expensive, mm-hmm. and nobody lengthy, really wants to be in a it. lengthy process. It is, and you know, you never know how the case is going to turn mm-hmm. out, and so there's a lot of risk. Well, I'll be looking in Target now to see if there's any <laughs> but, Burberry designs. I'm but, curious to know now. Well, I'm more curious about the fact that if you're in China and you've got these companies that I mean, that's what they do is they they make and manufacture knockoff brands. That's one thing, and, and a lot of people understand that. But now here we are in the U.S. And the Target CEO has got to know what's happening. And they're just essentially, it's a blind eye and a deaf ear towards, you know, sales, sales, sales. We're probably going to sell a lot more than what we're going to get sued or settled for. So now there's really a question of ethics involved. I mean, there's a question of ethics on both sides, whether it's a Chinese or Target. But in this case, you know, you expect a different management of the problem from Target. It might be the case that, they provide this product to their legal counsel to review and give them an opinion. Like, is this too similar? Is it somewhat similar? Are you in the clear? You know, and and give kind of a range of risk. And also, I mean, 
they should consider how litigious is Burberry. Mm. Uh, so there's lots of things to consider. I'm not saying that Target mm. did or did not get an opinion, a legal opinion of whether or not this would infringe on Burberry or any any other company. But, I mean, that's typically what companies will do to try to mitigate the risks. They should have come to Christine and I because we would have just <laughs> said, look, put the little Target dog on a scarf. You'll sell billions. You won't need Burberry, you know? <laughs> Crazy, yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't know about that one, but I'm glad you brought that up, Christine. So the one of the other issues here that I brought up earlier, it concerns me a lot, is that the the industry is so big and that it, it is so litigious. It's much more litigious after this conversation than I even thought it was, and I'm I'm sure that the audience thinks that too. Is there any leadership that you know of in terms of the fashion industry? So you have the Council of Fashion Designers of America. I don't know that you're getting direction from them about what to do, what not to do. If somebody rips somebody off or there's a design question, here are some general rules that we'd like you to, to think through before you make, you know, I don't know. So are you seeing that? It just seems like, again, it's there's too much uh, loosey-goosey Wild West stuff going on here. Yeah, I'm not sure that there's a ton of organizations that are combating this, but there are situations where designers are banding together and Ooh. supporting uh, different companies. For example, in the Samsung and Apple litigation over the curve of the smartphone, so Apple has a very iconic look to its phone. Mm -hmm. Samsung designed a similar phone. Uh, I believe it was like the Galaxy S9 mm -hmm. that had a curve and some other features that Apple thought infringed on the look of their product, on their trademark, on their trade dress. And the court found that Samsung did infringe and, Samsung, and awarded over a billion dollars to Apple and Samsung appealed it and got it down to just over 500,000, I'm sorry, 500 million. And the designers, fashion designers stood behind Apple to band together to say that you have valid IP, mm. this is a valid design, you've, you know, wow. and and are really like outside of their industry, mm -hmm. but they're standing together because uh -huh. of the law involved. Yeah. So they don't want people to be able to make a few minor changes and then be able to rip off their their brands. Yeah. So they stood behind Apple on this. So oh, there are designers mm -hmm. who are standing up. And mm -hmm. I think maybe it's not as well known, mm -hmm. but it's happening. Wow. So are there law firms that just essentially specialize in fashion, trademark, and copyright? Or, or most of the law firms like Dickinson Wright, that they specialize in a lot of different areas of the law, not just this particular one. Because I, what I'm thinking is, if there is one that's like that, you know, and there's some association that the, like the Council of Fashion Designers, there may be some kind of discount for anybody that joins and goes to that particular law firm. Yeah, I'm not aware of law firms per se that specialize just in fashion law. I think maybe because there'd be a conflict of interest, I think, if you are getting mm. all these different designers and companies in the same field 
because you don't want to represent one company that's in conflict with another company. So typically you'd have um, attorneys who kind of specialize in different aspects of the law, including fashion, so that they can more fully represent their clients and not have any conflict of interest with other designers. So where can our audience find you? Oh, so I'm on website dickinsonwright.com. I also have a LinkedIn page. LinkedIn? Okay, good. Yeah, yeah I've learned so much on this in this podcast, I'm going to have to come see you for my intellectual property now. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. You did. And, you're yeah, very knowledgeable. Well, thank you. And also, I do work with a lot of big and small companies and everything in between. And I do work on in, within a budget. So it's really oh, okay. nice that, you know, I can understand kind of financial restraints of startup companies or mid-sized companies or even large companies. And figure out what the needs are, what kind of IP we can maybe obtain now, what IP we can wait a little bit to get protection on, and and what do we need foreign-wise. And then we can work to a solution within a budget so that you can at least get protection right away and then build onto the protection as your as your brand grows. And you can oh, you can work great. with designers from anywhere in the country. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. And Canada. And Canada. <laughs> ah, <laughs> can't forget thank that. you, Christine. Can't forget that. Thank you. Well, and plus, I have a lot of relationships with uh, counsel all over the world. So, just an email or a phone call away, and I can oh. talk to them and get protection on any IP that you need in those countries. Oh, great. beautiful! That's very important. Yeah, good That's to great. know. Andrea Arndt. Thank you so much for joining us on FashionCast. It's been a pleasure and a great, great honor. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. This was fantastic. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit us on our website at fashioncastpodcast.com. I'm Christine. And I'm Michael. Stay beautiful. Stay beautiful.